welcome to the ninth episode of the Northumbria Politics Society podcast. Don't forget, all our previous episodes are available to stream on Spotify, Anchor, Google Play, however you choose to listen. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Northumbria Politics Society and on Twitter at PolsockPod. So how are you, Jack? How are you going so far? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, I was meant to finish uni today, but I had to get extensions on my on my essays just because I had a, like a little bit of a thing with them that I don't really want to go into but so I'm a little bit annoyed that I'm not finishing today when I can see that some of my friends are but yeah. do you know what that's really funny that you say that because I'm in exactly the same position I was not very well last week and just that two or three days out really put me behind with my essay so went to ask for help they're brilliant and I got a little extension on just one of mine so it's a bit difficult isn't it when you see everyone finished for the summer and I'm yeah. so in the library but and it's especially like with my position being in the final year is that yeah. now that people are finishing this was meant to be me today finished yeah. with a university like for my undergraduate degree so that's why it's probably a little bit yeah, but, I can, but I can I can sympathize with you as well because I last year we had the opportunity where we could get like two week two week extensions yeah. without requiring evidence and I and I did and looking back now I realized I probably could have done that yeah it's really without the extension I always thought oh I'll never need a pack or yeah, I'm always super organised. I don't need that. And actually, three days out from being ill really threw me off, and I just yeah. needed that extra bit of time. So never ever be ashamed of needing a bit more time or a peck. You are totally deserving of it. And when you go and speak to the right people, it's so easy to fix and get you back on track because you deserve it. At the end of the day, a little bit more breathing room to get things done to the to the standard that you can do them. Yeah, definitely. So I feel like we should we should get into it really because yeah, we've got quite a lot to cover yeah. uh, because a lot's happened in the last two weeks. But we'll obviously start with the news like we normally do. So let's start with the BBC because there's been quite a there's been quite a big shake up at the BBC yeah. over the last few weeks in the backdrop of the local election and just generally. So should we start with the political editor? Yeah, so really interesting. That was that was something that you brought to my attention because I didn't fully realise. So yes, yeah, so I've always been really interested in Laura Koonsberg and her role and what she does. I think it's really important. Not sure whether she was necessarily the best person for the job, but she's gone now. And a great, amazing guy called Chris Mason has taken over. And now he actually started his career up here in Newcastle, working for the BBC. Um, so he's actually from Yorkshire, from nowhere. Okay. Um, and he's got a slight speech impediment. It's really not big at all. It's only slightly. But I think that's so important that they're taking on these northern presenters who aren't perfect, but he does an incredible job. And you can tell how much the role means to him and how much energy and enthusiasm he's putting into it so it's gonna be really yeah. interesting to see his journey as he develops as political editor I, I feel as though he's probably the best choice as well yeah. as the replacement obviously we had nick robinson before laura kinsberg but because of his uh i believe was it was it throat cancer, was it throat cancer? Yeah. yeah i wasn't i wasn't too sure obviously he had to sort of take a bit of a backseat role so hopefully chris will do a great job yeah. but then as well with the bbc uh on tuesday uh, dan walker actually left who was the yeah. presenter for bbc breakfast alongside oh what's the name it's sally nugent that's it sorry sally just, nugent. yeah it was him and sally nugent who presented bbc breakfast and he's been presenting since 2016 and he has left the bbc to join i believe channel five oh, right, okay. on tuesday um so he's been around with the bbc since the mid 2000 i couldn't find an exact date unfortunately 
But as well as breakfast, he was on obviously Strictly. Was it? I believe it was last year. He was yeah. on Strictly, and then he also presented a football focus for twelve years between two thousand nine and twenty twenty one, which is like the sort of mid, a midday football show on Saturday, which is just before like all the games happen. It's a, I used to watch it all the time when yeah. I was like little. So he's a, group, a big figure to you, like how Laura Koonsberg and political. Yeah, yeah, been definitely, a big for me. and like yeah. obviously Dan Walker. He was also like a big part of the BBC sport coverage just in general. So he'd cover yeah. like things like the Olympics, uh, the golf, the things yeah, like that. And, and I actually I actually met him when I went wow. to the Open Golf Championships in either 2011 or 2012. I believe it was, was the Lytham St. Anne's where I met him. So that would have been 2012 when I went. And I actually got his autograph and I got a photo with him. I, no, I don't have him on me. Like, it's all back at home. But like he was one of the most, he's been one of the most memorable pundits since I first started getting into sport. And obviously me going, first wanting to go into sports journalism, it, he was someone who like I sort of look, looked up to really. So it's a shame to see him leave the BBC because it's an organisation that I respect so yeah. much. But I hope he's going to flourish at Channel 5, really. Yeah, on to Pastures New. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the other news, really, revolves around uh, the Ukraine war, unfortunately. But obviously we're going to just cover it in the news so that we don't have to like keep dwelling on it like we've explained before. It's obviously it's a big thing, but we don't want to keep sort of bringing it up. Unless some, unless a major development happens, which yeah. we can't avoid. But one of the main things from the last couple of weeks is that McDonald's have announced that they're permanently planning to relieve Russia as a result of the Ukrainian war. Uh, they opened the first branch in Pushkin Square in Moscow in 1990, which was like a watershed moment in the demise of the USSR because it was like the biggest McDonald's in the world, I believe. Yeah, this capitalist and it was market. Like the, and it was like the first time an iconically American brand yeah. had ventured into... Be, behind the Iron Curtain, which at that point, okay, it was in tatters, but you know, it was that's how big it was because it was obviously, like we say, such like a quintessentially American brand venturing into Russia for the first time. So they were I, breaking a barrier. Yeah, yeah. I believe I've, I've studied this before so much because it's interested me so much. I mean, like a, a hamburger cost something like the equivalent of it was like 150 rubles or something, which was like a ridiculous amount of money so to very expensive, yeah, to oh, the wow. Soviet people because obviously, like the the wages and price controls were set. Mm-hmm. So, but obviously, because McDonald's didn't have price controls. It's such an interesting thing. You should definitely look into it a bit yeah. more. But obviously, McDonald's shut their temporary, temporarily shut their 850 branches in March as a result of the invasion. But they've now announced that they're leaving Russia for good, which is quite a big yeah. thing because it's the biggest country, Russia's the biggest country in the world by square mile. And obviously, over 800 branches that's a lot of that's going to be a big loss to the and russian economy the knock-on effect for jobs and employment yeah it's a lot more than just a headline definitely and then in the last couple of days uh, nato have confirmed that sweden and finland are i believe finland have formally applied and i think sweden are talking about it or have, or have said that they're going to apply yeah which is obviously a landmark moment for european relations because obviously finland borders russia and Sweden borders Finland. So basically it's one of those things where if Russia if Russia was to try anything with them after they were to join NATO, around 30 countries, including the US and UK, would be obliged to come to their defence. Yeah, so, it's sort of for a preemptive, isn't it? It's yeah. sort of trying to predict what's going to happen next, trying to be one step ahead. It's interesting. It's probably, in my opinion, it's probably like the safest thing Finland and Sweden could have done. Yeah. But by the same token, it's really like, setting the groundstone for a potential like european war because mm. obviously at the minute it's quite constrained 
to well not constrained it's quite restricted to just being like it's ukraine contained. yeah contained yeah. And sort of like there's talk about it maybe spilling over into moldova but like it's it's quite contained in that area of europe and no nato country has yet been involved mm-hmm. so we did cover in the first episode about the ukraine crisis about actually how close it is yeah didn't we we spoke about how many hours flight it was from london yeah. and that really hit home it's close but at the minute NATO doesn't have any obligation to get yeah. involved, but this could this could be a bit of a game changer, really. But on a more positive note for Ukraine, they won Eurovision, which is which, amazing. Which is amazing. Obviously, not a massive surprise because they were the bookies' favourites. Yeah, and Sam Ryder came second. With yes, Spaceman. that's what I was going to go into. Amazing. Like the UK, the UK. I'm a big, big Eurovision fan. Like it's one of those it's one of those few guilty pleasures that I've got in life. So I absolutely love watching it every year, and this this year was no different. And to say that the the UK scored absolutely nothing last year, and then for them for them to score, what did they score? I've got it in my notes here. They scored four hundred and thirty nine points. Which sorry, no, second. sorry, no, they no they didn't. That's Ukraine. They scored four hundred and sixty six points. The UK, yeah, to Ukraine six hundred and thirty one. But the UK won the jury vote, so the voting split up where like individual countries vote through juries, and then it goes to a popular vote, and then the popular vote through Europe. Um, they calculate it to yeah. add to the points. But Ukraine won 439 votes from the popular vote alone, which is wow. the biggest in TV voting history. Which They only introduced that back in like 2015 yeah. or something. But yeah, um, Sam Ryder, Spaceman, he did, his, he did his proud. I saw a really interesting thing that was speaking about how he prepared for his performance and how he wanted to perform to not only the people who were in the room at the time, but also the viewers at home yeah. through the television. And they were talking about the really interesting dynamics and the way that he was performing. Really, really interesting, the sort of the showcase behind Eurovision. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, Sam Ryder, he started out on TikTok, which was, really? quite, like, which was quite like a big thing. didn't know that. Oh, did you not? No, no, he started out on TikTok, and he's ended up moving in now. He's going to be playing the Platinum Jubilee party, wow. and he could be on for number one here. I've seen which, that he also wants to do a um, collaboration with, I think it's, are they called Kulash? No, Ka- the, the, Kalush. The Kalush Orchestra. Orchestra. Yeah, the, the Ukrainian... Yeah. The, like the folk rap group electro folk band formed in 2000 i think that'd be that'd definitely be great yeah he but, said he wants to do a but by but by tomorrow like we say sam Ryder could become the first uh uk eurovision entry this millennia to score a number one wow so so delete is appropriate congratulations commiserations to sam Ryder <laughs> for achieving not number achieving one. number one in the uk charts this week. brilliant i also saw that Kalush Orchestra are going to auction off their trophy that they won in Eurovision. That, that's nice. Yeah. So hopefully raise, raise some more funds because obviously it's quite a hardship that the Ukrainian people are going Definitely. through. Yeah, the UK won 12 points, which is maximum juries from Austria, Azerbaijan, Belgium, Czech Republic, France, Germany, Georgia and Ukraine, which was, I mean, France and Germany especially. Like you, When people say that like your Eurovision is all political, like, you know, the Europeans will never vote for us. The fact that France and Germany have both voted for us, it's pretty impressive given like the sort of Everything, the whole backdrop yeah. of Brexit and stuff. But I mean, my highlight without doubt was seventh place Moldova. That was an, uh, that was a wonderful song. It was called, it was called Trenoletso and it was sang by Zabob Zidub and the Advahov brothers. It was like, it was literally the main lyrics was uh, hey ho, let's go folklore, rock and roll. <laughs> And there was this guy dressed up as a rapper who was rapping. And then there was two guys in suits. One was playing an accordion and the other was playing a violin. Brilliant. It was so much fun. And it came come off the back of a run of about five like ballads, which were a bit like, 
it wasn't really like the sort of party atmosphere that like Eurovision yeah. is known for but then it became like a party because of that song it was so much fun and I've just had it like stuck in my head all week brilliant but Aww. it's been so good but the one the, the last thing I want to talk about Eurovision is so you know how we have people like Andrew Marr not Andrew Marr sorry um why did I say Andrew Marr we Graham have Norton. Pe- Graham Norton why did I think Andrew Marr <laughs> very different Graham people. Norton who like commentates over like it yeah. used to be it used to be Terry Wogan the late the late great Terry Wogan who used to do it, but now it's uh, Graham Norton and uh, the Ukrainian equivalent the commentator he was doing it from an undisclosed location in a bomb shelter I saw that oh my god that's quite a big thing so obviously yeah. like it's a deserved congratulations really to yeah, Ukraine for I winning I saw that picture of him in a sort of an underground bunker Look like it, it, desk it really put into perspective put like what's yeah. happening so like i feel like even though it's sad that the uk couldn't win i feel like if we could if we had to finish second to anyone definitely it'd be ukraine i mean Very they even well gave deserved. us 12 points so yeah. did we reciprocate that i probably, can't remember yeah. but anyway we'll, we'll probably now get on to the more political stories of the week yeah um so the first thing I think we need to talk about is the local elections, which is what you... Really interesting. Yeah, so you, the Lib Dems have made the most gains in terms of seats won, and Labour has won the most councils nationwide. So I think the big takeaway from everything about these local elections is that the Conservatives lost more than 300 seats in total, which is a big defining moment for them. Are we surprised, though? Um, I'm not. A bit. It definitely speaks volumes about the country right now and how we're feeling. But it's also it also demonstrates the um, the shift since local elections last year. Do you remember the the elections last year with the Hartlepool by election? Yes, and things like that. Like the Conservatives absolutely stormed that, mm, which so how the tables which turned. political commentators said was quite unprecedented because it's almost this is almost like local elections are like our equivalent to the US midterms. Yes. So normally you expect the governing party to sort of like fall back in terms of their vote share, but three hundred seats is but, a lot. But this didn't happen. It is, but this didn't happen last year no it was quite surprising the amount of gains the conservatives made but it shows just how sort of how quickly things can change yeah and how everything that's happened over the year has developed this distrust for the conservatives definitely this has been really reflected in the local elections but apparently i was hearing something like saying that the labor didn't gain as many yeah they didn't gain as many they won as they were expected to nationwide but not as many as was expected lib dems actually took quite that's what i think it was is that the lib dems took quite a lot of the votes off labor yeah something else which is quite interesting which i have a personal experience of is that some council boundaries have been changed since the last elections okay so it can make the data quite hard to interpret i know for example my local council changed its boundaries and its name actually um and I'm, i was kind of thinking why, why have they done that and i think it might be due to new housing so in our area there's been a lot of new housing estates being built so that's land that previously didn't have anyone living on it and now they need someone to represent them so maybe that's why there's been shifting boundaries and changes of names etc so yeah now there needs to be a representative for that particular local area that didn't exist yeah. previously well i mean we'd for Donks, I always postal vote my elections. Yeah, me too. Um, and we had, in Donks, we had our local elections last year. So this year, I believe we were only voting for a new mayor of South Yorkshire because it was yeah. Dan Jarvis, who is also an MP. So he sort of, I think, I'm not too sure. Um, who does he represent? Sorry? I believe it's one of the Barnsley constituencies. Right. But I get the feeling that, like, I don't know the full story, but I get the feeling he uh, stood down, obviously, to focus more on being an MP. Yeah, in a similar yeah. way that I think Tracy Brabham yeah. did. And uh, it was Oliver, Oliver. his name's Oliver Coppard who won. So congratulations he, to him. He, uh... he is, he's, I believe he's Labour. Right. 
I'll just check that. He's an independent person, actually, one hours. A local lady, I think her name's Kirsty Poskett or something like that. And she's a local lady and she's really involved with the local area. Yeah. So she got a lot he of He was, votes. Oliver Coppard was the Labour candidate for Sheffield Hallam in the 2015 general election. Right. Which was that, I believe that might have been Nick Clegg's old seat. Obviously, he, I believe, retained it in 2015, but then lost it in 2017. Right. I am just going to check that. Yeah, it was. Uh, in, in 2015, he won... Nick Clegg won Sheffield Hallam competing against the now mayor of South uh-huh. Yorkshire, but in okay. 2017, he then lost it to yeah. uh, Labour yeah. with a different candidate. Sense. Something else that was quite funny that happened. So um, whilst broadcasting the election results in the early hours of the morning, the BBC News presenter Hugh Edwards had to apologise to viewers after a cameraman unexpectedly panned to him eating a croissant from oh, the BBC Oh, I think canteen. I've seen this. Do you want to know what he said? So he said, I'm going to admit to you, I've just had a little bit of croissant. So I'm just finishing it, and I'm ashamed to say that, but there you go. It's 20 to 6 in the morning. And then he continued, <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant. The real life of a BBC presenter caught a little bit off guard eating his BBC croissant mm-hmm. from the canteen. But obviously the biggest story, I think, that's come out of the local elections is the seismic shift in what's happened in Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland yeah. So obviously, if you don't know how Northern Ireland politics works... I wouldn't blame you because it is very, very, very complicated. But for a good reason. For a good reason, yeah. obviously, with a Good Friday Agreement and coming out of the back of the Troubles, yeah. it is a complicated political system in Northern yeah. Ireland. But shall but I self-explain? For, yeah, 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 you can Yeah, do. so over in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin won the most seats, making it now the largest part in the Northern Irish Assembly with 27 seats compared to the DUP's 25 seats, so that does give them a slight majority. It is being quoted as being a defining moment for our politics and for our people. And I think that was Michelle O'Neill who said that. And she also went Yeah, she's the leader of Sinn Féin now. Yeah, she's a really strong woman, figure, character. She's really brilliant. And she said, um, Today ushers in a new era which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality, and on the basis of social justice and she continued to make lots of comments about working through partnership not division respectful political perspectives and i think that is a really positive thing and definitely is a big move forward for northern ireland just for context as well so Sinn fein is now is is a northern is an irish nationalist party i should say yeah so they are present in the republic of ireland as well and they support a united ireland as their main priority and i think they are the largest party in the irish parliament now as well so that's yeah. why this is this is quite a big thing. Uh, and then obviously the DUP is a Democratic Unionist party, so they're like the main... They believe in... They're quite conservative because they yeah, went into coalition. They went into coalition with the Conservatives in 2017. Yeah. They want to maintain uh, a Northern Ireland like constituency country, essentially. Yeah. yeah. But they are uh, protesting during the government because the way the government works over in Northern Ireland is the two main parties from each side of nationalist and unionist have to go into a coalition with each other in order yeah. to power share so that not one ideology has an advantage over the other. Mm-hmm. And the DUP are boycotting, and I believe this is over this is over the Brexit deal. Yeah. And I and because they they seem to think that a vote has been shifted to Sinn Fein mm-hmm. because of the Brexit deal, which is driving towards a United Island which they want to fight against. Yeah. Yeah, so really interesting shifts. So, happening so that's in why it's Ireland. that's why it's so big, and I believe the British government were over there this week. I think I saw Liz Truss. Liz Truss was over was there over to there. try and work on a solution because I mean, yeah, but nothing ever good. There was when Liz Truss is. This doesn't. There. This isn't a new. This is a new phenomenon with uh, Irish politics. Like their government breaks down all the time because of this very very yes. fragile power sharing. I think they went three years between twenty seventeen and twenty twenty with no government because. 
was it was either Sinn Féin or the other um, nationalist party. I can't remember. Was it the SDLP? One of the nationalist parties refused to join the government because I don't I don't know the ins and outs. I've not actually researched this, but I get the feeling it might have had something to do with the fact that the DUP entered into confidence and supply with the Conservatives. So that's not necessarily a coalition government, but it basically means that the Conservatives can control the minority government because they have the backing of the DUP's votes in Parliament. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a very, very complicated situation that's going on in Northern Ireland, but this vote is seismic, really. And it's actually come at quite, a, quite an appropriate time, almost, with the culmination of Derry Girls on Channel 4. Yeah. I've still not actually got round to no, seeing either. the third series, so but I know that Ariane, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, yeah. absolutely loves it because I follow her on Twitter. So I'm not too sure when I will get round to it, but I'm sure I will. Something but, to look forward to. But yeah. apparently the apparently the, the last episode has culminated yeah. with the the not, like the vote on the Good Friday Agreement. So that's why I suppose like this vote has become quite significant. Ooh, this like this yeah, the local heart. elections have become quite significant yeah. to Northern Ireland really. So I suppose, like, on that note, we should move on to the Queen's speech, which sort of, like, it's almost quite appropriate, really, that it's come less than a week, it came less than a week after the local elections. Yeah. Obviously, if you saw the news, uh, it was Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, who actually delivered it this year, not the Queen, because obviously the Queen is ageing. That's probably the the most polite way to put it, really, is that mobility means she's now struggling to obviously like get in and out of parliament and i don't yeah. know if you've ever seen the state opening a parliament before it's a long it's a, it's a long walk yeah. from out from westminster into yeah. the, the house of lords so but it was still her words wasn't it yeah yeah he well just... well you say her words it's the government who writes the speech yeah so it was it didn't it doesn't really matter who gives it because mm-hmm. it is the government who writes this speech the queen just reads it yeah which that sort of brings me on to the fact that, like, I thought it was found it a bit weird the way that, like, I remember I saw one article that was saying something like that the headline was in the newspaper. I hope I did you proud, mummy. And I was like, why are we fetishizing? Fetishizing? Fetish, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> fetishizing a seventy-something-year-old man, like reading off a bit of paper. Where was that article from? Can you remember? Probably the Sun. I was going to say Daily honest. Mail or something like that. Probably the Sun or the Mail. Yeah, something like that. But that—that's one of the sort of like irks that I had with the with the Queen's speech. But you know, sort of moving on to the actual nitty gritty of it. So some of the uh, pledges that have come in uh, include a levelling up and regeneration bill, which is planning to give councils new powers, including to force landlords in England to let out empty shops in order to rejuvenate high streets. Which, to be honest. I think it's long overdue Absolutely. because like high streets are just becoming looking more and more derelict each passing year. Whilst the cost of renting them goes up and up and yeah, up. Yeah, so it's like it's good that that's sort of coming in to try and like regenerate the high street. And then uh, there's going to be a media bill which will enable the planned uh, privatisation of Channel 4 and to allow Ofcom to regulate on-demand streaming services like Netflix, mm-hmm. which would be quite interesting to see how that actually gets enforced. Yeah, in practice, because yeah. how Because I, I, I swear Netflix is an American company. Yes, yeah. So I'd, I don't know how this is going to work, but it'll be interesting to like no find idea. out. How really. they actually implement it, yeah. And then the public order bill is being uh, introduced in order to give new police powers over pr- disruptive p- protests because that was blocked in the House of Lords during the last parliamentary sitting so the last parliamentary year yeah and then uh they proposed a new bill of rights as well which we were actually discussing before this yeah we would because i remember that it was one of the conservative pledges 
probably back in like 2016 yeah. um, when we left the EU they pledged they were going to get rid of the to uh, replace the human rights because yeah. the human rights act enshrines the European what is it the European is it the European European human rights probably yeah but it just distances is it a, tra- is it a charter the European charter on human possibly. rights or is it the, it might be no I think it's convention the European convention, convention on human but rights but it basically just distances us from Europe it's going to be very, very similar. Just, yeah, it's just going to have I, a I imagine the British so. Bill of Rights. But yeah. obviously, this, this is all coming in the backdrop of uh, increasing uncertainty regarding the cost of living. And a minister, Rachel McLean, a Tory minister, came under fire this week uh, for suggesting people struggling with rising costs should try working more hours or getting a better job. Apparently, her her words were taken out of context. That's what that's what people are saying, but. In my opinion, she's been rightly criticised as being so out of touch because it's like, you know, we've thought of that and it's like for people with childcare, like mm-hmm. it's not something option. that... It's not an yeah. option. There's, there's not enough hours available in the day to work extra yeah. for some people. I think this isn't the only case. This isn't an isolated case of an MP being out of touch. No. There was... I can't remember who it was. There was a male MP who said something about... People can't afford to eat because they don't know how to cook properly. Yeah, I can't remember who said that. I can't that. remember. It was a male was MP. It, was it Jacob Rees-Mogg? No, it was more of a backbencher. Okay. Not as a main, I can't think who it was. And um, it's really interesting because I then saw a BBC presenter tweet and say, actually, last year I went to a food bank and I interviewed someone who used to be a chef in a restaurant and they were still struggling to make ends meet with food and they are more than qualified to put together yeah. meals with the bare basics. So it really just shows so how it's not that So it's are. not that like people don't know how to cook, it's the fact that people can't afford the f- food in the first place. Yeah, that they can't afford to put the food on the table. So it just shows you how out of touch and that is what was her name Rachel McLean Rachel McLean is not an isolated case here there is a number of MPs that are just saying this without even thinking having not experienced they're not on the ground they're not experiencing it day to day yeah and I mean one of the things that I saw that went quite it went quite viral was I can't remember where it was but a local council opened a new it was a conservative controlled local council opening a new food bank and the people who were opening it was from the local council of conservatives and they were smiling which like let's not let's not be like glorifying petty this. here yeah. like in terms of like what they're actually doing but obviously the fact that like someone's going to be smiling at the opening of a food bank no you should be sort of what's the word not somber but like it's not it's not something really to be to, proud it's of. not something to be no. proud of exactly if your council is having to provide these things then deeper questions need to be asked about why yeah. yeah. So just MPs being out of touch in general. Yeah, exactly. So it sort of just seems like more of the same from the House of Commons again as yeah. saying that. Do you really. remember that programme? I can't remember what it was called, where two families used to swap lives and they used to go and live in the other person's house with the other person's budget, do their job. Yes, I can. And live in their house. But I can't remember like, what it was called. I can't think what it was called. Was it called a house swap or something like that? I think MPs should do that with someone living on the breadline in their own constituency, and then they can go back to the Commons and speak truthfully. That'd be that's actually a really good idea. What was that program called? I feel like it was a Channel Four thing or something. Well, I mean, there was there was wife swap, but obviously, like, was was the wife swap, or have I just taken that from horrible? I think I've seen that in horrible histories. That was brilliant. I love that. But yeah, I think it was called a house swap or something. But it was brilliant because they got the budget, the food shop, the job, everything was switched around, and they had to live probably like a week or something in the life of that person and realise yeah. actually how lucky they are. Yeah, but obviously, like, with the cost of living, like, increasing pressure is going on the government to announce an emergency budget in order to combat this because prices are spiralling. Yeah. And, and do you know what... I mean, even as students, bit? I think the students can oh, see yeah. that, that prices are spiralling. I so, think our energy bills mm. gone up. I mean, it's it's 
included, but every month we obviously have pay. to pay yeah. for like an all-inclusive package. And I think it increased £16 mm. in April, which and I think it, which is about, it was near, I think, about a third of what we were paying, something yeah. like that. So increased, that. It increased by a third. Yeah, which is a big step up when yeah. you're already on a budget, yeah, you know, you're on exactly. an income from your student loan. But something that annoyed me a little bit is at work, we got a pay rise and all my colleagues were sort of going, yay, pay rise, ah, so good, isn't it? And I was going, yeah, but pay rise doesn't actually match the percentage of the price of things going up so there you say you're getting a pay rise you're actually still losing out because it hasn't risen at the same rate as prices yeah so you're still going to be worse off doesn't matter if you've got a pay rise yeah that gap yeah. is still not being fulfilled exactly so i had to sort of not sit my colleagues down but i sort of explained to them look it is great but please don't go and like spend all your money because at the end of the day prices are still going up yeah exactly i mean it's felt like for the last two episodes we have sort of like been focusing around like sort of really doom and gloom stories so let's mm. let's finish on a more positive story yeah, right absolutely. this is this is one that i was like this is one that i want to talk about because it's it's quite a big thing in the sort of world of sports really yeah so on monday uh jake daniels who is a 17 year old footballer he plays for blackpool fc he became the first professional male footballer in england to come out Yes, in over 30 years yeah. not since Justin Fashnow who played in the 80s and 90s has England seen an openly gay male professional footballer and this is this is massive like this is everyone's saying and rightly so that this is a this should hopefully be a watershed moment for definitely uh like British elite football and huge congratulations for him as well because it's not yeah definitely it's not an easy thing to do oh no until then uh, there was, I think there was only one a person who played like in top flight football who was openly gay and that was Josh Cavallo who plays for Adelaide United in Australia Mm -hmm. he came out in October 2021 last year and again he did it to like to such sort of like warmth and like you know he did it like he was getting congratulations from so many people and it's one of those things where like it's significant because it shouldn't be significant in this day and age like because people think that it's 2022, like, you know, people can be who they want to be, really. And we're lucky that we're sort of growing up in a society, in this country especially, that's widely accepting of how people identify and who they choose to, like... How they want to live their how life. How they want to live yeah. their life and who they want to love. But obviously, with... Like, I've been... I go to football matches regularly. Like, homophobia, is mo- even though I don't personally see it, you know just how prevalent it is. Yeah. Like, just in fact... Do, do you know the story of Justin Fash now? No, I don't. Justin Fashnout, basically, he he killed himself. Really? Because, for for various reasons, but it was to do with his sexuality, and I believe he used to, he was the subject of quite a lot of, like, homophobic abuse, like, especially growing up in the 80s and 90s when football was, like, f- football hooliganism was at its peak in the UK. And toxic masculinity and, like, as well. And, the, like, the, f- the, how do I say this? Like, the football fan base yeah. in this country in, like, the late 80s oh, and 90s brutal. was... We were in yeah. the late 80s and 90s. It was absolutely vile. Yeah. So it was one of those... It's, like, a really, really tragic case. And, obviously, if people want to look more into this, is that I urge to... I urge them to sort of, like, read about the case of Justin Fash now. But it's like we're saying is that homophobia is still very prevalent. So, obviously, D- Jake Daniels doing this could hopefully, like, inspire Open people to do the same. people. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe he's, a, he's only 17, so I don't believe he's a regular sort of like starter for Blackpool who play in the second division. Mm-hmm. 
but even still, like it's still a massive moment because he has. I think think he has played like official games for them. So it is a big moment for him to sort of like for him to come out and and say that I'm a f- male footballer and I'm gay and this is okay and this is okay exactly yeah. So it is. It is, yeah, it's a big moment really that I just want to talk about and I just wanted to congratulate him really because it, it must have taken a lot of bravery yeah. for him to come out and obviously he's now going to hopefully play an illustrious career. It shouldn't be his sexuality that defines him as a football player. It should be his talent. Definitely. I think. Yeah, what a brilliant note to end on. Yeah. I love that. Great. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm just going to do a final shout out. Just no, that's no problem. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Northumbria Politics Society and on Twitter we're at Pod. I think that's all from me this week. Yeah, I think we'll be back in two weeks. Yes. And then hopefully by then we should have a protocol, temporary protocol set up for my little break. Uh, but yeah, this is something we're going to discuss. So I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll sort out what's going to be happening with the podcast going forward. Because obviously after our assessments finish, our time is going to be split between home and Newcastle. So we're, we're, we're going to try and do it so that like, the podcast takes minimum disruption to our own lives. Yeah. But I'm sure something will be sorted. Yeah, if there's any first or second years out there that are listening that would like to be involved with the yeah, podcast Yeah, we do have year. we do have one person who's registered their interest, yeah, but, but we just need to we just need to sort of get in touch with them. But yeah. if, if you are interested, like please don't be scared to contact us. You don't us. have to have any previous experience no. podcasting. Neither of us two did no. and it's been a great opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so get in touch with us yeah, on definitely. the Instagram or Twitter or however. Yeah. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye. See you later. Bye-bye.